Okay. There was a young man in Newfoundland whose opinions were consistently sound man. <laughs> David Slavic, James yeah. A. Smith. <laughs> you know, it's I, I, I would say that uh, he it's a young man who's often confounded and uh, his opinions were often unsound, but I appreciate the vote of confidence. In the afternoon, riding the scapegoat, burning equipment, decomposing, cool off your jets, take off your sweats, I got a funny feeling. They got plastic in the afterlife. It's a popular show. It's a, a popular and showy <laughs> exercise with James A. Smith and David Slavic, and we're joined today by Rich Jensen, the canary in the cool mine, a man who's been there at every stage of interesting counterculture and every step forward the culture has managed to make since the 1980s he was there uh, with the setting up of sub pop and k records uh, and uh, is still doing really interesting things right now rich welcome to the show how are you my friend uh doing really well struggling to think of something that rhymes with seattle that i want to embrace <laughs> but... <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the limit well uh, is it like professionals here you can battle to to get your prattle and uh you know i, I think that it all matters you know <laughs> you just got your vaccine david i did and uh i really feel like i got hit by a bus and uh, since that we have a British audience, I, I want to say I, I got hit by a double-decker bus. It was, uh, it was just, uh, it was great. I felt liberated in a way. Uh, you know, I, I, it's funny because I think had I do not, if I didn't have to leave Newfoundland to go see my family, I might have delayed the shot just to kind of wait and see. But I, I'm glad I did it. Um, I had the Pfizer uh, vaccine, which is very funny. And I think living in a country with like a socialized healthcare, it's very funny to talk about brands. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That I've, I found this whole project of, uh, you know, I got this shot, I got that shot. I've seen the social media around it. I'm a Pfizer girl in a Pfizer world. Just absolutely like disturbing. And I hope that the next pandemic, which I hope doesn't happen, but will happen, that we, we get a little more socialized about this because I think that this is uh, one of the darker aspects of sort of the pandemic is the profiteering. And uh, as yeah, we see true. people and, uh, you know, uh, some Seattle-based companies like Amazon making money hand over fist as we walk into this new new and brave world. I think that uh, Rich Jensen is one of the perfect guests to talk about what this world is and what, what we can make out of it. Because one thing I, I and I'll say this is that I've known Rich for about five years now. And uh, at each turn of sort of cultural turn, he's always had ideas. And he's always been a bit ahead of the curve and, and, and sometimes a little too ahead of the curve. If, if, if he, we're all being honest, he's always a little, he's always a sort of thinking, thinking ways that people are not ready for uh, and often thinking ways that people don't know they're ready for, but need. And too much, too much, uh, too much perspective. As, yeah, I, <laughs> as it, right? But, but yeah. as, as someone who, who's always trying to broaden their perspective, Rich has kind of dropped into my life at periodic times and really made a difference. So I, it's great to have you, Rich. That is all so kind. I hope, uh, I hope, I hope to offer something in the next few minutes that uh, measures up <laughs> these uh, warm remarks. Um, 
it's interesting. I guess uh, I don't know where we will want to start first, but just thinking about uh, what's what what our uh, you know what our point is in world history, where we're recording this conversation and having referenced uh, vaccines and the pandemic, and uh, you kind of offered a, a call to uh, more socialist and less uh, branded uh, next turn of uh, the world. Uh, it just makes me think that one of the uh, clearest lessons of, I mean, there's several very clear lessons of the last year. Uh, one is that everybody that had a certain amount of money doubled their amount of money for doing nothing. And they had too much money at the beginning of the year. And so they have twice too much now. They've done nothing for it except owned whatever they owned that doubled in value. Um, and so I think we're kind of in this moment where I think people thought maybe we were never going to be back in the world, like the world just stopped and we we're in this other phase and we might never come back. But now that we do come back, on the one hand, it's like we can just fall back into where we were in 2019, or there's going to be a nagging, some of us were kind of carrying a nagging suspicion that like, wait a minute, like, why don't I have twice as much money as I did two years ago? Um, what, what is the legitimacy? And when, when the answer is the legitimacy to the ownership class getting double their money is their place in the destruction of the planet. Uh, excuse me, but that's not, that's actually not a legitimate basis for doubling your wealth, uh, as far as I can see. And I kind of, so I kind of think we're, I feel like we've kind of been knocked over the head and like we're slowly coming to, and it'll be interesting to see what happens as the, whether the, whether, whether a, a new kind of conversation gets articulated. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, I've noticed is that there was just a, uh, in Ireland where, where I think there is a, some embrace of a, of a new taxation system, given this sort of like Irish tiger sort of taxation where they, they tried to become the Singapore of, of the, you know, the British Isles. And um, they had discussed that where they're actually destroying TVs in Amazon centers because they had reached capacity of what they could hold. And that these are, you know, these are high end, like we thought, okay, you know, if some food goes bad because we're producing too much in the supply chain, we thought, you know, that's okay, right? Like we could all deal with some like spoiled bread. Now we should be feeding those to people. We understand that too. And then in, in places like Seattle and Portland, they've been trying to do that. There's some legal boundaries towards actually helping people in that way. But when you're seeing like durable goods, like a television, get smashed because they need to just produce more you think what are we doing to this world well and then take the supply chain back to the indigenous lands that are being destroyed by the mining to get the lithium out for you know for these rare earth materials that are not being recycled uh yeah it's um you know uh anyway it's a it's a mad situation um yeah i'll uh, I'll, I'll pivot to my person personal take <laughs> which is you know i grew up punk rock and kind of apocalyptic and so on the one hand like i i'm i'm old now but i'm not i'm not really intimidated by this moment we're in i've kind of felt like this was coming all along and um and 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 i think i think that i think those of us that are not intimidated um and are trying to keep a clear uh a clear view of these things um because we've had a kind of criticism all the way along about this the system and system of reward. 
Um, this can be a moment where, um, you know, we, we pop up and we can kind of find each other and organize. Um, and, uh, and so the different, um, the different ways that uh, pop, popular media or um, or the way that media is distributed have become really crucial in this moment and um, and so that, that's that's anyway that's that's these are some of the things that I've been paying attention to and um, and oddly enough in my view cultural behaviors and practices like music matter a lot for being the kind of complex and fully full spectrum human way to send signals, uh, yeah. emotional signals of uh, to each other to find out who isn't afraid, who's both aware of the situation and not intimidated and keeping a clear head uh, because these things right now are, are potentially incredibly valuable. Yeah, it's almost as if um, just as capitalism has entered a kind of uh, death drive moment where it's destroying perfectly good TVs and laptops so it can produce more, simultaneously at the level of uh, cultural ownership and cultural production, it's entered a kind of Soviet period where all movies and TV shows and all like historic TV shows and stuff are all on the Disney app. Disney is like the state broadcaster. Uh, increasingly, all uh, music, all podcasts even are uh, owned by Spotify. Like the ownership of culture is narrowing down and narrowing down. You know, I don't know, it's, it's the kind of uh, the, the end point of a story that really begins back in the 80s when you were getting into the industry. Um, what, what are the main differences between when you were starting out with sub pop and, uh, and where we are today? Well, um, someday perhaps I'll have a 10-hour narrative to answer some of that. And there was a moment in the 80s where this idea of independent versus corporate uh, came together in the little town of Olympia, Washington, where I happened to, to go to try to be a student for a few months. Some people a little bit older than me had, uh, had, had looked at this and thought about having uh, independent music be the preponderant uh, type of music played at a particular community radio station and built a music format on that basis that 80% of the content of the music content at this station would be uh, of, uh, you know, sourced from small companies, independent mm -hmm. companies, not through the mainstream distribution, mm -hmm. which is a segment that represented maybe 4% of music uh, commercially. Um, and they, they came to this, this, um, this kind of hack on uh, music distribution um, in the late 70s. And so by the time I got there in like 1981, one consequence of that, because all the music was on physical media and you had to be in the room, I mean, unless of course you're broadcasting on the radio, but, but the fact of being in the specific location where a physical artifact was, you know, where you could share and experience it, uh, that meant that this room, the music library of this particular radio station, had this amazing, eclectic, rare collection of artifacts from all over the world, from small companies that were not, uh, didn't have the budget to uh, dominate and get their uh, production narrative out. And, 
and so anyway, that being introduced to that and that kind of um, uh, uh, it, 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 it might, it, it, I, 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 I don't know about the word ideology, but it's certainly um, a, 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 a qualification to yeah. a, a category of media. Um, and then, of course, this ties up to what was, you know, the things that David knows about from D.C., uh, you know, Discord Records. Um, it's the same kind of program. Um, it, um, you know, and in the 80s, we have what happened in punk rock. We also have, uh, in a related way, um, you know, the independent work and, and groundbreaking work in uh, sample, sample-based music, um, also known as hip-hop. Capital is just some numbers somewhere or something representing a pile of numbers. You need human beings to determine how to move capital. Cap, uh, capital wants to defend itself. You know, you've got people that defend it. You've got attorneys. You've got police if you need to, to defend your pile of capital. That, all of that social practice is antithetical to the creative practice of people wanting to have fun with their friends in Newfoundland or come up with a new, uh, you know, a new move at a party or whatever, whatever it is, people naturally have their own embodied reasons to be pursuing art forms and being creative, independent of capital. Capital always, always lagging. And so particularly in the, in the past, um, you had to have scouts that would go out and find out what was happening and then take it back to the factory and make it mass produced. In this present world, we now, it's like somebody can, a kid can come up with something on a TikTok and all of a sudden they're popular mass market. And so it's been very confusing as to whether, like, is the, was that independent media criteria, is that a dinosaur that only applied to the physical art, era of the physical artifact? Or is there a way to um, figure out a, a critical theorem to then, um, to critique the sources of media in the present day and offer the same kind of qualifications. And, and that is exactly the work I've been doing for the last three years mm -hmm. is to say, like, let's work as cooperatives. Let's work without, like, why should uh, PayPal or another uh, bank transactor get uh, a, a fee off of every transaction that we make? Uh, aren't there other, uh, why, why should we, you know, we were hoodwinked with Web 2.0 that right. uh, we get free email, but of course it wasn't free because uh, they've, they've leveraged all that data for political power and, and value. Yeah, if you if if you're not if you're not paying, then you're the product, right? That's what they say. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to hear all about your um, your experiments in um, cooperative ownership in the in the digital era, um, but. Like the the main thing I'd, I'd say in response to that is that um, I think the importance of cooperatives and, and experiments in economic democracy is that their attempts really to decommodify work itself and to make work more similar to that experience of messing around creatively and experimenting with your friends. So it is it's more social and it's it's more uh experimental in in precisely that kind of way that we associate with the the garage band the bunch of kids with with long hair playing uh playing whatever kind of music in in uh in in the in the garage um 
could you like um, get a little bit more anecdotal and, and give us the story? How did you get involved in this scene? How you know? How, how did you enter the sub pop story? And how did you kind of you know become part of the creation of these records that continue to be so many people's sort of you know entry into having a sense of counterculture or a sense of musical taste or independence well as i as i mentioned you know i came to a town where the people the 25 and unders had uh had you know uh established you know i was 18 when i came to town 17 or 18 in this little town a uh, little little tiny college town where as i say the radio station uh had uh, been converted to this independent music program. Uh, Bruce Pavitt had been uh, uh, producing a, a magazine uh, called Sub Pop and was working as an intern to another project called Op Magazine, which was a product of uh, people who uh, uh, worked at the radio station. So that had been going for like five years at this college that started up uh, in the 70s um, in a re as a reaction to uh, sort of the institutionalized educational programs uh, that had been more commonplace. So you had, you had a lot of uh, free thinkers, if you will. Uh, this college had started up and they had advertised in independent media, like uh, Mother Jones magazine, I think was happening, a crawdaddy. And their ad line had been something like, um, you know, drop back in. Like if you dropped out of the system, drop back in. And they, they, they advertised both for professors and for students. So when I got there at this undergraduate college, uh, the average age of the undergraduate student was, was like 25, 23, 24, um, not kids right out of high school. Um, so anyway, what, I, what I'm kind of saying is that I, I, I entered an environment and um, with some and, 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 and just made friends. My predisposition for that was coming from, you know, I'm part of the breakdown of the empire. I mean, my, my, I, my, my, my parents were young and I grew up kind of uh, with thinking about um, different ways of doing things and knowing that the, the Western material uh, product pro process was uh, a dead ender. Uh, and we had to look for other other solutions. So I was already kind of predisposed to that. And then um, so met people that, like I say, had a critique that I could I could frame. And how did I get into it? I wanted them to think I was cool. So I because I thought they were cool. So I, I produced some writing and some performances and uh, just tried to, yeah, ha have fun with my friends, make friends. Uh, impress people and uh, and use my brain in fun ways and uh, and and just kept at that and um, it happened that uh, along the way, like I say, I was at school very briefly because uh, it, it didn't make any sense. The money I didn't have money for my family, and I couldn't really. The, I had a little bit of money for my grandparents, and um, all I could really think about, like. I, I heard that school was for career and the only thing I could think of doing with a career was like blowing up the White House and my 
my grandparents were like, uh, uh, they, they thought that Nixon was led astray by, by the people around him, you know, and yeah. the Vietnam War had been for the right reasons, all these kinds of things. So well, I counter get... to that. And I'm just you don't talk that, about Nixon separately, but. Well, yeah. I just, my point is, my point is that I, I, could, I dropped out of school and got grants to work at the college and uh, along the way got a job in the media center and then made a, made a recording that I slipped under Bruce Pavitt's door and made its way onto one of his cassette compilations because, as I was saying, we, the cassette form was, was accessible to us. Uh, so I have a piece on Sub Pop 9 as an artist and, um, and then just duck, like, didn't stay in school too much more and kind of went to work with people my age to build a new society. And the way we found each other was through music. And I ended up doing, you know, touring around the country uh, with something called Rock Against Reagan, Rock, which was a descendant of Rock Against Racism. Like, so I just hung out with my friends and, um, uh, and then, um, yeah, I ended up accidentally, uh, Sub Pop uh, was up and down as a business. Um, it kind of followed this independent music ideology, which, I mean, other amazing labels like SST and Touch and Go and um, uh, over there, Rough Trade, uh, you know, um, you know, anyway, the, I was kind of, I was lecturing before about like creativity doesn't come from the money. Um, the, and so actually when you filter for people without money, they are being extremely creative. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. so that's you have to be creative just to put things. food on the, on the table. And I think that, that I mean, that's the, that's the truth. I, I, I remember going to like a pretty prestigious liberal arts school and meeting the people who are creative there. And then, you know, getting into sort of the punk scene, the hardcore scene, and then meeting the people creative there. And the level of creativity was off the charts of the people who didn't have money because they had to figure out, okay, how are we getting on this bus? Right. Okay. Am I going to go panhandle for this bus fare? Am I going to, am I going to, you know, go and sell a t-shirt at the Salval and then use that money to get to the concert that I'm going to go and record for. I'm going to write over this tape that I got, uh, or whatever, or, you know, those types of things. You, you saw sort of like levels of innovation that, that really were, were quite something. And I, and I think that, you know, to get into sort of the, broader sort of discussion about music and and culture i think that right now we're seeing the creative arts really be taken over by the rich people and i think that's that's a problematic turn because the best arts that have come out of the united states have really been immigrant arts or you know sort of subaltern arts and uh now you're seeing like you know Billie Eilish is cool but like her parents are also rich performers as well you know desperate arts desperate arts yeah i remember the day dad ran over my dog it was real hot me and my little brother were playing in the sprinkler i was pulling the legs off his gi joe because he didn't give me any slurpee so thus far, we've been representing um, the sub-pop moments um, as kind of the last bastion, at least as far as white guitar music is concerned, of, of a sort of romantic independence 
um, of a, a, a kind of social, uh, sociable, cooperative um, c- kind of creation of music. Um, I, I'm kind of interested in like what happens to that generation. Soundgarden, Nirvana, Matani, these are the archetypal Gen X bands and they they provide a soundtrack to a sort of generation x disappointments and almost kind of nihilism in um at least in how popular culture represented it this sense that the the kind of optimism and and utopianism of the boomers had only delivered reaganism thatcherism and so there was this kind of you know bleakness where what is there to do but to you know hang out listen to music and and to kind of drop out but but you know without the utopianism that the boomer version of that um had um today it's it's been pointed out in in britain at least by the um by the, the social theorist uh, jeremy gilbert that in the jeremy corbyn phenomenon and i, I don't know how far this model would apply to Bernie, but but as far as Corbyn was concerned, the change from 2017, where it looked like there was going to be a kind of socialist resurgence in in Britain, to 2019, when Corbyn was roundly defeated, the difference there was that the, the Gen X men dropped out of the left coalition, that these guys who had been barely tolerant of Corbyn, but had voted for him in 2017, stopped, didn't vote for him in 2019. So the argument is that actually there was a kind of sense in which there was a cohort of people in Britain, mainly many guys, who had in their youth kind of given up on politics and replaced it with a kind of artistic rebelliousness or or subcultural rebelliousness and it sort of signed up to the idea that you couldn't change electoral politics and then when they found that their kids actually did believe that you could change electoral politics and worse had got into a coalition with a bunch of crusty old boomers uh, in the form of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and and over the Atlantic Bernie that actually there was something humiliating about this I wondered how far you would see the music of sub pop as actually having a kind of political shelf life. I mean, I'm interested in what the politics of the music and those involved was at the time, but that that's a little provocation of what the kind of long story of that Gen X ethos was. Yeah, that's it's that's I mean, uh, that's a very insightful uh, proposition. Um, There's some generalities there that um, are difficult to engage just sort of conversationally. Um, I could speak for myself. And then I was, you know, uh, I my association with Sub Pop lasted about 20 years, first as an artist in its in its pre corporate form. And then uh, because I knew all the artists pretty much on the label um, and got a little bit of uh, bookkeeping experience, I kind of came in in a managerial role right before uh, the rest of the world heard about Sub Pop and Sub Pop transitioned from uh, Arcana to mainstream. Um, And then had this, you know, 
accidental career as a as a as a label executive for about nine years, um, and then stepped back from that. Uh, I had my own label, so anyway, I had this like heat of Seattle experience, uh, and then stepped back from that uh, at the end of the 1990s, and then have been on a couple other trajectories since then. Some of which relate to some of the generational you know, Gen X, if you will, um, aspects, uh, or generalizations. Like I, I have a, I have a stance, you know, I have a, I have a, I think I have a stance as a, as a Gen Xer. Now my, it's interesting. My 16 year old daughter likes to point out that I'm, I'm a boomer, um, technically. And I try to argue the point that like, when I first heard about Generation X uh, through, uh, through the novel that was published in 1980, I think it was, I was definitely in that category. But then somehow, <laughs> somehow I got, and, and, and that my sense of relationship to the, the overculture, if you will, has been uh, oppositional to uh, the baby boomer tropes. I mean, I, I think you're a generational trader. And I think that that's I, one of the things that's consistent through your career and through your life and through your spirituality and sort of like the way you embrace the world is that you are willing to embrace what's good now. Mm. And I think that I think that 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 began then, but I think it's continued into now. And we'll get into that a little bit later. I mean, I wonder if I, uh, James asked a really interesting question, and I don't want to have all my words seem like I'm dodging and weaving from answering it. I'm just trying to like, but I also look for um, the way that mass scale structures, issues um, represent themselves in, in the local frame. And, you know, Seattle is interesting in that way. And it probably because of its historical position in the uh, march of Western empire, um, you know, we, we've ended up with things like Boeing and Amazon and Microsoft in this tertiary community and uh starbucks and sub pop you know there's there's something about i think the way the settler colonial um uh, process unwound in this particular mm. geography um and its particular place in uh capital formation um that have contributed So we've got to ask about about Kurt um, and and your interactions with him. How, how how much did you kind of deal with him personally, Rich? I met him a couple of times, and um, they were um, they were they were they were significant. Um, I don't um, I don't I'm not prepared to really talk about uh, Kurt too much in in those in particular. Um, um I think um I mean uh yeah it was very complicated being associated in business um with uh Kurt and Nirvana upon his death um and I think also because those of us who had appreciated 
Well, we were talking. We were talking before. I mean, it isn't. Why was it so difficult for Kurt Cobain to be a rock star? It was because he organized his cultural product to be in opposition to the capital situation that he found himself yeah. in. Yeah, and I think when when he found himself, and I mean, you know this more intimately, but this is like an outsider view. When I when they did the unplugged and there was a symphony there. And it was such a beautiful thing, but it was actually revered and and like there was a there was a there was a cello player too. Yeah, and it yeah. felt just like it was just uh, my so friend. Beautiful. My friend Lloyd oh, Holston so yeah. is uh, like one of my deepest music guides. Yeah, um, and um, shout out to Lori, who people know from that session. But yeah, it was I, I, there may have been, I don't even know if there was. So anyway, I just want to say symphony. There was a cello play. So. But it, it felt it felt it felt like it felt like uh, what someone uh, uh, would mention Moldbug would call the cathedral. It felt like it felt like he was inside in, in, in a way that it was like, OK, you have ascended in like sort of a John Lennon-esque way. And that set, I've watched it a million times. My father and I, we watch it. We get like drunk on microbrews and watch it, you know. And one of the things that takes me there is that there's like such a sweet sorrow in that set. And and I think it it kind of feels like that, you know. It's like what it's like this outsider insider, and uh, you know that's one of the harder things. Um, I think I think there is a strong argument to be made about a generational trope. Where, you know, with the exception of like Pearl Jam, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, we—I don't know—I don't want to say too much about Chris Cornell. Um, I what—I didn't know him, but uh, but I think he was also haunted um, by 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 both Hurt's death and and thing the kinds of. In, inside outside that uh, that you brought up david um i think that ha has haunted a lot of people uh basically my age and my experience and so there's been a lot of drug abuse there's been a lot of early death there's been a lot of investment in social tropes that are not the sort that you can escape your 50s and still be alive um and um so anyway, that's that's what I have to say about my generation and, and what I share. Kurt was about five years younger than me. He came through the same little part of the world here, shared some of the same local heroes. Like when 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 David talks about Newfoundland um, and you know people who you know changed each other's lives through their cultural product, but no one outside of that village knows. Like. That, that's how it was in, in Olympia. Um, and, and those same individuals, you know, artists like Calvin Johnson, uh, you know, uh, that started a label called K that was, uh, I think Kurt had a K tattoo. Um, like that, uh, like we shared, we shared those. Like Calvin is a brother to me. He's and, uh, you know, uh, part, of, part of my own life. So, so yeah. we shared that stuff. So what that what the consequence that I want to say is when he, you know, did what he did with the shotgun. Um, people, I mean, I had a particular view because I was related to business, and of course, a, a, when an artist dies, the value of their work explodes. So that was a very uh, difficult uh, place to be. 
emotionally um, and to glimpse uh, the way we transact value in this world. Um, and, um, and then um, to just have thought like, what if this person had more care around them um, and, and had survived what they had to offer, like having come that far through the, the, their torture journey, like they had, like, yeah, I, I had a book. I had a book about the history of music, the music business um, called, I forget, I forget now what it's, oh, I forget now what it was called, but it, it's, it's the one I was referencing before about like, um, how player piano rolls, all the different media forms created these bursts of variants that then consolidated in media monopolies. And by the time you get to 1990, this, this pattern has repeated itself um, like seven times perhaps. Um, and I, I had this book that taught me that, um, and I'm sorry, maybe later I can remember what the title was. I had, I had, I, I was close enough, like we had very close friends in common. I was close enough to have wanted to get that book to him and thought like mm -hmm. if he had that frame of perspective on his situation, he might've had, you know, more, um, more resources uh, to, to, to carry through. And so we lost, we lost, you know, we lost, we lost a golden child. We lost a hometown, like, a banner carrier, and uh, and it was uh, it was devastating, and I couldn't listen to the music for about five years. Um, I wouldn't have said this much about it until probably now. I just want you to talk a little bit about Resonate before we go, because I, I think it's a really cool project. And um, we could do a whole show on that and blockchain and sort of left in the blockchain and what populism means and all that sort of things. But uh, I, could you just give a little plug for that? Okay. Well, first, because you, you went from talking about something called resonate to talking about something called blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true that I encountered resonate in the blockchain, but it's like, it's a transition to something else. We're not a blockchain project. Yeah. Although I would say oh, great. That there's, that's great. There's, there's a kind of utopianism that has been informed by blockchain that's put that's facilitated social practice at a global level yeah. that is really fascinating and will uh, impact um, social practice and technical design uh, going forward. But um, resonate uh, aspired to be a blockchain project and uh, it crashed. Like we're having a blockchain cryptocurrency crash at this time. Um, right now, uh, everything's down like 60%. Uh, the same thing happened in 2018 when some people who had lucky money from cryptocurrency uh, decided to back uh, the co-op um, to make a, you know, what we, our business offer is a, uh, a co-op based music streaming platform. So a people Spotify, if you will, um, where, uh, the 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 users, the developers, uh, and the musicians providing content all own and govern uh, the platform. Um, anyway, some some money came in, 
there were there was a staff that was hired briefly. Some some uh, marketing got there, and then it crashed. And it happens that I got introduced to it. Uh, I got introduced to the founder in 2018, and uh, they were planning to pull the plug in 2019. And I was like, "Wait a minute! You've got like 2,000 people involved in this. You're registered in Ireland. Uh, you've got." 10,000 euros in the bank and it costs 300 euros a month to keep your server on. Like, why would you end this project uh, just because of the economic trauma you've experienced? And so we've, so it was for me a chance to build on some of these social principles that I've been offering in the conversation. For me, technical projects start with who's in the room. Um, In the last few years, I read uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Freire, and it's completely changed or given given me confidence about um how one you know what is the social world it's it's something constructed in dialogue uh you can my proposition is that there is a digital way to organize and architect digital spaces um it's 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 mainly about addressing the hierarchies of power the asymmetries of power Um, and so, you know, if as an individual, uh, if all the individuals are having all their data vacuumed up into some monstrous construction that becomes actually the, the viable record of public space and then it's sold to third parties so they can activate it uh, for things like uh, putting Boris Johnson into power or uh, that, that we, we can't, we can't that's a, that represents a power asymmetry that we need to design against. And I, I, think that's a, I think that's a beautiful phrase that uh, I'm really going to think a lot more about, digital dignity. C- could you give us a concrete example of what, of, of what that could look like? Well, uh, so, uh, for example, we, so this is a kind of thing, um, this concept of self-sovereign identity is something that's been associated with blockchain projects, and it's been the idea that you could construct an identity online that um, that it doesn't necessarily that you have control over how it ties back to uh, your real life. Um, in fact, that that social condition in relation to um, uh, online presence doesn't require a blockchain. Um, and and so we we uh, through resonate through the good work of. Uh, our recent uh, secretary and technical director, Nick Main, who would be great to talk to sometime, I pitch his name. Um, we obtained uh, next generation internet grants from the EU because we're based in Ireland um, uh, for building out something called verifiable credentials. So it's a, it's a data minimaliz- minimalization scheme for extending what data is out there uh, so that you can, you can be credentialed and create authentic digital documents within a social space, but it's based on minimal data and it's also based on voluntary association. So if I want to disappear, I can disappear. If I want to represent myself under a pseudonym, I can do so. Um, but to the degree that I may get something out of the community by offering it, um, I can offer it. And it can be constructed in such a way that there's no central stockpile of data. It's like everybody has a wallet in their pocket and when they need to, they can show part of the information uh, to, to access whatever resource they might wish to have, and then we can share those resources. So this is like, to me, this is a precursor to, um, to online space. And so I have to say, 
you know, one of the arguments to bring it back to like Michael and, and David and the, all the podcasters is like the fact that people like it's like we got to be on YouTube or whatever the hell. But we should be that should be a distribution platform. We should occupy digital dignified spaces that are not being uh, they're not taking advantage. We're not our transactions are not going to venture capital projects. Venture capital, I'm, I'll, I'll, you know, I know some venture capitalists and they're nice people, but the prospect of starting a project and wanting to see 50 times return, the, the, that means you're willing to destroy. And in fact, you do destroy 30 projects on the way to that one unicorn. Um, yep. The degree of anxiety that that causes spread around the world like it doesn't it doesn't go away it just kind of goes into the culture and we it, we soak up this like anxiety process uh, the, so so my project Re resonate cooperative is 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 a genre of cooperative called a platform cooperative it's like you could have ubers like they have in new york uh drivers co-op of new york i think is what it's called um, so you have an Uber, like you can have the application on everybody's phones, but you don't need that initial capital input and extraction built in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so at that same time, you should, people should have not enter into these um, asymmetric uh, social scenarios. And so if, ha if, if some portion of our time as broad, as, as bloggers and podcasters was going to developing this independent media space again a theme of the last 40 years we could have we could have spaces of digital dignity at a global level for building organization and association on a voluntary basis and then cool stuff could happen because there's enough resources in the world that like pro, you know profits can be re-socialized and you don't have to go to war i don't think you don't have to go to war with the billionaires to re-socialize their assets. Some of them also recognize the fact that they're mortal beings and they might like music. So they might drop, I, I like to talk about the guy with 20,000 beds, like he owns hotels, he's got 20 houses around the world. He's, he occupies 20,000 beds. He doesn't need 20,000. He could take a thousand for himself, drop another 19,000 beds into a cooperative resource exchange network and now every art there's 19,000 beds for artists to sleep in as they go around the world so anyway i i kind of think these are uh value yeah. that um I, I at least that's the kind of conversation i'm i'm interested in participating in. build up on guns bring your friends it's fun to lose and to breathe Thanks for listening to the end of another episode of The Popular Show. We want to continue creating great conversations between materialists and dissentient thinkers from across the political spectrum. But to do this, we need your help. Please log on to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and subscribe for £3 a month or your national equivalent. You'll get first access to our most unique interviews as well as regular patrons-only episodes that never get unlocked to the public. If you're strapped for cash at the moment, you could help by posting about us on social media and urging your friends to quickly hit subscribe on their podcast apps. We're totally independent and have got where we are so far by word of mouth. Stay popular and look after each other out there.
You can start your journey in our patrons-only archive by listening to the second part of this interview with Rich Jensen, where Rich and David give an intimate portrait of their friendship with the late great left commentator Michael Brooks. Our good mutual friend Michael Brooks suffered from that in his in his uh, time. Um, one thing that we we haven't addressed yet is that uh, uh, Rich was one of the sort of founding members of the sort of Michael Brooks project. And uh, with, with much frustration and joy and beauty and love, we, we all in body, you know, started that five or six years ago, I guess now. And um, we, we saw a trajectory, you know, really come, you know, someone shoot from, shoot from sort of, obscurity to, to, you know, getting his obituary in CNN and those types of things. I know, I know it's the positive people running from their time looking for some.